Almighty God and Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Hopefully at the end of the sermon today, I'm going to make a few comments uh, about verse 30. Uh, I was asked about verse 30 in our gospel reading for today. Uh, was, I was on a shut-in visit, and uh, we were talking about this uh, gospel reading for today, and someone asked me about it, and so I promised to address that today, and I will do that uh, following the sermon. So it will take a little extra time in order to do that. So, a question. If someone shines a bright light into your eyes, what do your pupils do? They constrict. They get really tiny, like little pinpricks, to protect the retina, right, from that brightness. If you've been cold, and cold for some time, and you begin to suffer from hypothermia, what does your body do? You shiver, right? You shiver. If you're sitting quietly in a place, you're relaxed, and all of a sudden you hear a very loud noise, what do you do? You jump, right? And even if you don't jump outwardly, I don't jump outwardly, but inside it's like I have a liver shiver of some sort. Something jumps inside of me. That's called the startle reflex, all right? And so a reflex action is a sudden movement in response to a stimulus. And there's all kinds of examples of this. We're all familiar with the knee-jerk reaction, right? You cross your legs, the doctor takes a little rubber hammer, taps your knee, and you kick. Most of us do, anyway. And you better stand back if you're near me. When I, I mean, I really have strong reflexes in my knees. Uh, there's sneezing. Sneezing is a reflex. Uh, sneezing is the convulsive expulsion of air from the lungs triggered by irritation of the nasal passage. And for me, all it takes to sneeze is I get up in the morning and if I don't have something warm on my feet, my feet get cold and for some reason my nasal passages are irritated and I start sneezing. And in fact, I had an uncle uh, who's gone to glory now, but if he would stand out in direct sunlight for any length of time, he would start sneezing. The sun somehow irritated his nasal passages and he would start sneezing. So those are all examples of physical reflexes. And uh, I, I, I looked this up. There are some 60 different physical reflexes that your body can manifest. But beyond that, there's something that I would identify as emotional reflexes. That's part 1B of your sermon outline. Emotional reflexes, I think, are very real. For example, if someone disrespects you in some way, you feel hurt because you're missing the respect that you need in order for that relationship to flourish. You feel hurt. And, and very quickly, that hurt sort of metastasizes into anger. And, and you feel like you want to strike back or, or um, you know, answer in some way which is not very loving. 
Or, for example, if somebody fails to appreciate you. And that's the number one reason why people leave their jobs. They feel a lack of appreciation from their boss or from others. You immediately feel hurt because of the lack of appreciation. And that quickly metastasizes into anger. You may experience disapproval of your words or your actions. And that triggers hurt, which again triggers anger. Those are all examples of emotional reflexes. And, and, and I label these things as natural acts under Roman numeral one. They're, they're natural acts because they are inborn. They are inherited. They're with us from the very beginning. Uh, even babies in the womb sneeze. They have reflexes. But just because they're inherited does not absolve us of guilt. You know, St. Paul writes, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Get rid of all brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. That is to say, even though anger, when triggered, will naturally arise within us, it's our job to get rid of it immediately. Because it will lead us into things that are far worse than simple anger. It's our responsibility to deal with it, even though it's inherited. You, you may have a predisposition to alcoholism, but it's your responsibility to deal with it and to get the help that you need. Road rage is a good example of an emotional reflex. I, I can recall driving down a two-lane blacktop highway and there was a lot of oncoming traffic and there was somebody behind me and I wasn't going fast enough for that individual and, and all I could see in the rearview mirror were teeth, like that. Now, when all you can see is teeth, you know, that's not a good situation, all right? That's the way we are, aggressive, angry. These are, these are what St. Paul would would describe in Galatians 5 as the works of the flesh. These are natural acts, natural responses within all of us. And I cite verses 32 and 30, through 34 in our gospel reading, if you love those who love you, that's a purely natural act. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? That's very natural, you see. It's a natural response. But contrast that, contrast that with Roman numeral two, unnatural acts. And these are things that are not native to us. They don't come naturally to any of us. Verse 27, but I say to you who hear, meaning he's speaking now to his disciples, love your enemies. And in Scripture, your enemy is anyone who's hostile toward you. That's, that's what it means. It denotes hostility for any reason. Love those people. Do good to those who hate you. And, and notice the progression here. Do good to those who hate. Bless those who curse. That takes it a step further. It's verbal abuse now. And pray for those who abuse you. That would... That would include physical abuse. 
To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. We'll cover that later. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. You see, these things are not native to us. And so when we read them, we immediately feel the condemnation of the law. We, we immediately recognize our own inability when it comes to these kinds of acts. But what is unnatural to us is natural to God. And that's Roman numeral 2, part A. These unnatural acts come naturally to the one who is loving by nature. They come naturally to the one who is loving by nature. God is love. And the reason for God's love is not located in you. It's located in God. The reason is within Him. His love is not a whim. It's not a feeling. It's, it's not something as malleable and changeable and transient as that. It is an act of the will. It does not depend upon your performance, but it is yours in spite of your performance or lack thereof. That's the love of God, and that is native to God. And what we see in our gospel reading for today, this Sermon on the Plain, is the way God is. And it's the way God is toward you and toward me. Number one, Jesus here preaches what he practices. He preaches what he practices. He's talking about the way he is. It's Jesus' own self-description. It's his description of how he treats you and me. And so when you read these verses in light of Christ, they make perfect sense. It's not a condemnation of you as much as it is an affirmation of God for you and toward you. Verses 35 through 38. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. See, that's the way it was in the ancient world. If you gave something to someone, it was, it was to be reciprocal. It was to be reciprocated in some way. And the point here of Jesus in giving, what he talks about giving, it's not to be reciprocal at all. It's purely grace. And this is the way God is toward us. Expecting nothing in return. And number two in the outline, whatever he asks of us, he first does for us. Whatever he asks, he first does for you. We cannot give what we do not have. We can give only what we've first been given by God. A man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. That includes forgiveness. That includes mercy. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You see, he's the one who takes up the cross for our salvation and for the salvation of all humankind. And he invites us to follow with our own crosses 
bearing the indignation and the rejection of others. I cite John 13 where, where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples and, and uh, they're perplexed by this. And Peter objects. He says, no, you'll never do this for me, Lord. And he says, unless I do this for you, you have no part in me. Jesus washes the feet. This is a self-sacrificial act. It is emblematic of what he's about to do at the cross. It's a picture of the cross. And then he says, as I have done this for you, so you should do to one another. See, it all begins with him. These unnatural acts come naturally to him who is loving by nature. And point B, they come naturally to those who have received mercy. They come naturally to those of us who are recipients of his grace. There's this scene in, in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is eating at the home of Simon the Pharisee. And a woman with a bad reputation comes into the house and she begins to serve the Lord. She begins to, to uh, pour ointment, expensive ointment, over his feet, and she cries over his feet, and she, she wipes his feet with her hair. And Simon it doesn't say anything, but in his heart he objects, and he says, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would know that this woman is sinful and she has no business being here. And uh, Jesus knows his thoughts, and he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. He says, a certain moneylender lent money to two individuals. Neither of them could repay. One owed a huge amount, the other owed a very small amount, but the moneylender forgave them both. Now, Simon, which one of those would love him more? And Simon said, well, I suppose the one forgiven the larger amount would love him more. And he said, you've answered correctly. Now, look at this woman. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. But to the one who loves little, they have been forgiven little. You see, we cannot give what we don't receive. And we've received mercy from the one who is merciful. I cite Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus, a man who receives mercy from Christ and is transformative. He suddenly becomes merciful, publicly declaring what he will do for others. That's the transforming power of God's grace. Point one under part B, you and your enemies share a lot. We share the same sins. We share the same sinful condition, the same weaknesses. In fact, the scripture declares that, that we and our offenders are actually interchangeable. I was driving up I-65 uh, this past week, and um, you, know, you see all kinds of things, and you hear about all kinds of accidents, and, and it makes me angry when I see the way some people behave, and, and there was a fellow that he passed me, and he was just weaving in and out of traffic. You know, I mean, as far as the eye could see, he was just weaving his way through the traffic. And I thought, what a jerk. You know, and then I thought of myself driving my wife up to the hospital, expecting our first child, expecting our second child, and 
how I weave my way through traffic. And, um, the Lord convicted me, and I, I thought I need to see myself in that driver's seat of that man because I'm guilty of the same thing. And even if I haven't done that exact same thing, I've done worse. You know, we and our offenders are interchangeable in the eyes of God. It's as if we form some sort of an affinity group in God's eyes. We're all guilty of the same things. We, we share that in common, which is our sinfulness, but Port B, we also share the same Savior. St. Paul writes, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. For all people. My friends, the reason why we are reluctant to forgive others is that we consider ourselves to be righteous. That's why we're unwilling to forgive. We consider ourselves to be righteous in relation to others. And the scripture declares there is no one righteous, not even one. But the righteousness that we do have doesn't arise from within us. It comes from outside of us. It is pure gift. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's the righteousness that we proudly proclaim. It's not a point of pride. It's a reminder of our humility and our dependence upon the Lord. That's the righteousness that we assert and that we share with others, a free gift to all who believe in him. That's real righteousness. And that is righteousness that cuts the mustard in the presence of God on the last day. That's what we've been given. And point number two, his mercy inspires us to be merciful. His mercy enables us to be merciful. And nothing else can. Nothing else can do that. All the haranguing and exhortation that a minister could do from the pulpit will not produce mercy in your heart. It'll only produce resentment. But when you are reminded of how you have been mercied by God, sins and all, then you see your neighbor differently. Whenever I have trouble forgiving, I'm reminded of how much I've been forgiven. In over 65 years, I've committed many, many sins. And yet God forgives me. And if God forgives me 65 years worth of sins, I can surely forgive my neighbor for a momentary lapse. In light of his mercy, I can show some mercy. My friends, that's the power of the gospel, and that's the only power that counts here. That's the only power that changes lives and transforms people. That's what we proclaim. That's what we give thanks for. That's what we bask in every Lord's Day in this place. And by the grace of God, we always will. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to share with you a little bit about verse 30 because uh, you may have a question about that. You may not. Uh, if you don't, you could tune me out, I suppose. Uh, but someone asked me about this, and I, I was visiting an individual 
and um, he said to me, he said, you know, he said, when, when you give to the Synod, or when you give to an organization, uh, a mission group, all of a sudden you start getting more and more letters in the mail <laughs> requesting uh, money. And, and he, he said to me, he said, I don't know what to do. He said, in light of this verse, give to everyone who begs from you. It seems like I should be giving to every request that comes my direction. How do you explain this, Pastor? What shall I do? And I sat there looking like, you know, deer in the headlights, and, and uh, I don't have all the answers. And I said, well, let me, let me study on that. Um, it, there doesn't seem to be any limiting factor in, in giving here. And he, he, Jesus doesn't qualify it. He doesn't limit it. It's a shocking statement, and I think it's meant to be. He would often speak like this, making extreme statements, and yet statements that are true, statements that are valid. So my question is, how did this play out in the early church? How did they deal with this? It's, you know, it's worthwhile asking that question. And, and so when you read the book of Acts, in Acts 2 and Acts 4, the early Christians came to view the property that God had given them, not as their own exclusively, but they began to view the property God had given them as the property of the community, the church, all the people. It was their property. They retained control of it, and as someone had need, they would sell something. You know, they didn't have banks. They would sell something and take the proceeds and give it to the apostles who would then distribute it to those who had need. And that's the way it worked. And, and later, they called deacons to do this, rather than the apostles having to, to work with that. So that's how they, that's how they, they handled it. Um, so the deacons would administer these community assets. And we talked about this before uh, when we discussed stewardship last fall, this community property. It's not communism, because you still retain control of your property. Uh, but, th but they viewed it differently. It was everyone's, not just theirs, you see. Evidently, however, uh, some abuses arose. Uh, and this generosity could be abused, and evidently it was. People were evidently requesting help who, in the eyes of some, really did not need help. Some Christians, for example, were choosing not to work and still expecting handouts from the community assets. So St. Paul set up guidelines for giving, and this is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, St. Paul wrote these words, if anyone is not willing to work, neither let him eat. And, and this is simply a reflection of what God said in Genesis chapter 3, uh, since the fall, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread. You see, so it's it, you're going to have to labor for it. Uh, it's going to be painful at times, but that's living under Genesis 3. And all of us must live under Genesis 3. No, nobody gets a pass out of that until heaven. Okay? So that's, that's the way it is. Now, we understand that some individuals cannot work. And, and they deserve and they need our support. But whoever can support himself must do so. That's not optional. It's not optional. And then Paul further wrote, and this is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 
He said, provide financial support to widows who are truly widows. Widows were very vulnerable people. And to be truly a widow means that you've got no other family to assist you. And this is what he wrote. If anyone fails to provide for his own household, he's worse than an unbeliever, because even unbelievers do that much, you see. And so if, if there's a widow who has family, they need to provide for her first before they come to the community uh, seeking uh, support. So let those who are able provide for their own households. So in a nutshell, all of us have responsibility to one another. Each of us should view our God-given assets as community assets. They remain under your control. So when a need arises, then, you give as you have decided in your heart to give. I'm just quoting Paul. Give as you have decided in your own heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That is to say, none of us can be a judge as to how you are doing your giving. That's totally up to you. And those of us who ask for that assistance also have a responsibility. If they're able to work, they must support themselves by doing so. That's not optional. That is God's word. So bottom line, when those requests come in the mail or they come over the phone or however they come to you, you know, it's between you and the Lord. You give as you have decided to. It's not for me to judge what you should do. And I, I will admit, uh, verse 30 stands as it's written. You know, he doesn't qualify it. He doesn't limit it. We are to be generous as God has been generous to us. But let no one tell you how you should be generous. That's between you and the Lord alone. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.